I started off coming at this idea from a representative angle, saying, well, if there are national parks that are rainforests and glaciers and deserts, why would we not include urban habitats and urban landscapes? Because they're recognised by the big international conservation organisations. They're recognised as a distinctive type of habitat. They're the world's fastest type of growing habitat. So why would we exclude them? Hi, I'm Phil Stubbs and you're listening to The Environment Show. Well, you may not be aware that London has been designated as a national park city. The man behind it is my guest today, Dan Raven Ellison. The National Park City is just one of Dan's many creative projects, projects that have been designed to get people to think differently about the environment around them. Dan describes his work as guerrilla geography. Here's Dan to explain first what that actually is. The guerrilla geography is radical, alternative, creative, surprising geographies that challenge myself and others to to think differently about the world, to make different kind of connections in our brains, and ideally, hopefully, to also make things a little bit better in places as well. One of the things that's really striking, I think, Dan, from all the projects I've seen you do is the creativity of your ideas. So I just wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about that and, in fact, how you get your ideas. That's a good question. I think a combination of frustration and boredom. If I have to wash a lot of plates or if I go on a long walk or anything like that, uh, my brain tends to sort of fill with ideas. But the inspiration for those ideas quite often comes from the frustration at things not being done or not being done well or people not seeing connections that maybe I'm seeing and thinking about how through provocation and action I can help other people to see the things that I'm seeing. So there's a lot of walking in your projects isn't there like a lot of them involve that. Um, I wonder if you can tell us why you love big walks Dan. Well I like exploring. I like sort of asking questions, searching for answers, getting out there. And walking is just, it's the the easiest, most accessible way to do that. You know, you don't really need to have much stuff. You don't really have any specialist kit necessary, depending on where you're going. It's phenomenally accessible. And, and by exploring through walking, actually, it means that, that other people can can share in that as well, either in their imagination or by going on similar walks themselves as well. But I'm particularly interested in going on walks that explore places in creative ways. So back in 2008, I did a project where I walked across lots of very large cities. Um, And I'm very interested in representation in my thinking about places. So to what degree is the way that people think about places, the reality of what they're like on the ground? So I decided to walk across Mexico City, Mumbai, London, taking a photograph every eight steps. But I spent a long time before then making sure that the routes I was walking represented the distribution of deprivation in those places. And also that the length of the walk represented the size of the footprint of those places as well. So that the walk I went on would then be like an exploration of of something that reflected the nature of the city rather than just something random. So with those walks you know not many people will think about walking across the whole of mexico city or the whole of london but actually the vast majority of us it might take us a day or two or three or four but most of us can do that and i enjoy that part of walking that's exploration and adventure but also that it's super relatable to people as well 
And so then that must have led to the stunning film you did, The UK in 100 Seconds, where you applied that same kind of principle, didn't you, to, to the land use in the UK. Can you tell us about that project and what, why you did it? Yes, yeah, so the, the Urban Earth Project over 10 years ago now was about thinking about how land is occupied in cities and making a film and going on a journey that reflected that back in the correct proportions. With my films, the UK in 100 seconds, the Netherlands in 100 seconds, and I'm currently doing one on national parks in the UK as well. It's really inspired by the fact really that, that, that many people have a very twisted imagination, a very twisted geographic imagination of what our countries often look like. You know, so for, for literally decades, many papers of a particular persuasion, many media outlets have been telling people that, that Britain's full, that the UK is full, you know, and giving this, this idea that there's no space for refugees, there's no space for migrants, there's no space for affordable housing, there's probably no space for any more nature. I would argue that there was no space in our hearts to be a member of the EU any longer because of this idea that people think the country's full. And actually, you know, it's not just a British thing. You know, this is a common idea in, you know, continental countries like Australia um, and also the United States where, where Donald Trump was saying that America's full. And he started off by saying that America was full in the context of the immigration system. But then he went further and said, no, it's sort of physically full is basically what he was saying. And anyone who's been to America will know that that country is not physically full. So I teamed up with Friends of the Earth and we ran a poll and we found that roughly a third of people in Britain think that over half the country is built on. So one in three voters, one in three decision makers, one in three, you know, people think that over half the country is built on. And it's kind of more like, one to two percent for the physical footprint of buildings and more like six to seven percent for suburbia and urban areas including all the gardens and things so i decided to make a, a short film based on a short walk where i went on a 100 meter walk to make a 100 second film where every meter and every second of the film is one percent of uh, what land looks like in the uk and what it basically shows is yes about six seven percent of the country is used for um, building on, but well over half is basically milk and cheese. Well over half is, is animal related agriculture. And, you know, given where we are at the moment with the ecological crisis, the state of the extinction of species around the world, the climate crisis, you know, the various different challenges we face, perhaps if we had a little bit less milk and cheese, maybe none, but less, um, then we can have more space for housing and more space for wildlife and more space for refugees. And the film doesn't directly say those things, um, but you know, I think it's quite hard to watch the film and maybe not get a sense that there's a spatial injustice to how we're currently distributing land and using land. Yeah, so you're actually a communicator, Dan, aren't you? Like in, in that case, trying to get give people the whole picture, aren't you? To to then think about environmental issues. Yeah, it's definitely about communication and education but coupling that with hopefully inspiring some action of some kind yeah. as well you mentioned provoking before too so it's a little bit of that isn't there actually just on that score probably one of the most remarkable things you've you've done is get london designated as a national park city uh, which might be provoking to some people so some people would see that as a contradiction in terms how would you explain to the novice the thinking behind that the National Park City? Well, you know, all of my projects start as a provocation 
to sort of test the water and see what people think. And then some of them accidentally become something a bit bigger, which is maybe a bit what happened with the National Park City. I mean, it started off as a provocation, basically saying, you know, if urban nature, urban wildlife is as valuable as rural nature. So if the urban peregrine falcons in London are as valuable as those that are in the Peak District National Park in the north of England, or those in Yosemite National Park in the United States, why would we exclude them and the 15,000 other species that are found in London and the people and the trees? Why would we exclude them from this brilliant idea of national parks, unless it was just some sort of weird prejudice against you know, humans, you know, and the idea that maybe Victorian idea that somehow animals and people that are in contact with people are, are less worthy than those that are in more pristine environments, you know, which I think is all quite a problematic thing to explore. And I started off coming at this idea from a representative angle of saying, well, if there are national parks that are rainforests and glaciers and deserts, why would we not include urban habitats and urban landscapes? Because they're recognised by the big international conservation organizations they're recognized as a distinctive type of habitat they're the world's fastest type of growing habitat so why would we exclude them but it sort of dawned on me really during the the campaign leading up to when it launched you know a year and a half ago that really it's not that that cities or urban areas are missing from our family of national parks it's more actually that national park thinking is missing from our cities Mm. it's more that landscape scale holistic, super inclusive, large scale, long term, hyper local, personal thinking um, Mm. is missing from our cities and thinking, well, what if we were to augment the purpose of a national park, you know, a better relationship with nature, with ourselves to have a place where, you know, fundamentally it's about enjoying ourselves as well as having that better relationship with nature. Well, what if that was the purpose of the city rather than just you know, sleeping in suburbia and making loads of money and trashing the planet. Like, what if, what if that that was the aim? <laughs> so that that was a bit cynical. That was a bit cynical in terms of the purposes. It's not just about trashing the planet. But you get my point that yeah. rather than just seeing as cities as centres of consumption, right? Um, that actually they the purpose was something different. I think it's an interesting question to explore. And one of your mantras is greener, healthier, and wilder. So it's sort of taking taking the the. the the good things in the city and, and kind of going further, isn't it, Dan? Like you, you want to go a lot further with that. Yeah, that's completely right. But, you know, the reason why we could do this in London um, is because for hundreds, if not thousands of years, people have been making the city greener, healthier, wild, and protecting green spaces. The reason why we have our great parks is because 200 years ago, people had the foresight to create those parks. There are as many trees in London as people because 200 years ago, people were planting the great street trees. And, you know, we have this combination across our great cities and the same is true of places like Melbourne and Adelaide, you know, where there's top down forces from politicians to help protect places, but then fantastic civic action from individuals to help bring them to life. And often, actually, those people are the same people. It's the, you know, the top down and sort of bottom up often merge together. So the National Park City is really a, a, a continuation of that spirit. But saying, do you know what? these things we've been doing for so long they're not happening big enough fast enough equitably enough we have the solutions we have the ideas we have the people but but why is it not happening at scale Mm -hmm. and i think that by having a a a loose broad vision that people can get behind can help to break down some of the barriers that, that stop that from happening yeah and you're encouraging of people to get involved aren't you dan like you you know you see this as everyone trying to 
do their own little bit in their own patch to improve where they are and 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 that would create something bigger i wonder if you could talk about that yeah i mean 100 i mean I, without a doubt this is about people and about recognizing the benefits of of everyone contributing however they can whether they're actually aware of it or not you know the, the great thing about taking a landscape perspective means that everyone and everything and everywhere whether they're doing good things bad things whether they know it or not they're included in that landscape and contributing in some some way and so the name of the game then is to switch more of those people into both being aware and acting and doing positive things towards like this great greater vision and i think it's interesting to step back for a moment and think about the way i see it is three predominant types of national parks you have around the world not in terms of uh, their landscape, but the way they're managed. And certainly in the UK context, many people aren't aware of these different types. So essentially you have the first type, which is the type that people are familiar with that came out of North America, top-down federal government, national parks that are owned by government, that have rangers who have guns, who can tell you what you can and cannot do and give you parking tickets and shoot you and that kind of stuff. Then you then have those national parks like we have in the UK, that are delivered through partnership where we have already have about 400,000 people that live in our national parks. And there's a myriad of complex ways in which the patchworks of, of landscape and ownership and ecology sort of mix together. And because they're underfunded and because of their complex ownership, you have to deliver them through partnership. And then you have some national parks like you have in Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, Canada, where there's policy in place, but actually it's indigenous people who have often lived on the land for thousands of years who best know how to care for that particular place. Mm. So just imagine actually for a moment that, that all national parks are actually a combination of all three of those to some degree, top down partnership and local people working together. So a national park city, yes, you need the top down policy to help you know, make sure you're protecting green spaces and improving outcomes for wildlife and things. You definitely need partnership to bring in finance and catalyze great ideas. But in a city like London, where I am sitting right now, nearly 10 million people, you know, half the, the landscape um, is green, quarter is gardens with about 5 million or something homeowners. Quite clearly, yes, partnership and top-down matters, but the extraordinary opportunity is through all the things that we can do in our everyday lives, whether it's on a balcony or a rooftop or a garden or on a street or through our work life, or whether it's just taking a moment to sit on a bench and enjoy where we are to improve our own mental health, let alone going and volunteering from others. All these things are not only important for our own health and well-being, but when you begin to add them up, are cumulatively extremely powerful. So yes, what individuals can do is absolutely vital but it's also recognizing that the interplay of as more individual people want and desire and take action on things to make their lives greener, healthier and wilder, that actually that will help give strength to the elbow of politicians who often want to do more of those things, but they need to kind of see the tipping point within their communities to feel emboldened, um, especially against, for example, the car lobby. One of the hard things too, Dan, is that that kind of long-term thinking. So you were talking about how the people in London many years ago, 200 years ago, planted all those trees. I mean, that kind of long-term thinking seems to be missing, doesn't it, in a lot of decision-making? It does. And I've been wondering recently, and maybe there's a historian listening who could sort of answer this, I wonder when, when that may have happened. Because this is this is really interesting. We had some designers come up with a design competition for us to pull in ideas for how we can make the National Park City a success here in London. 
And they were doing some research and looking at, from a spatial point of view, the commons movement um, in, in Britain in terms of creating shared land that people can benefit from in, in perpetuity. Um, but also looking at um, indigenous wisdom around the world and particularly looking at North America where there's this idea of um, you know, five or seven generation wisdom. This idea that you, you do things today which will um, not harm and ideally benefit people who will be around you know, seven generations from now. And they were looking at this and then they were looking at the timelines of London's parks and realized that the first park that was created specifically for the working classes because of health issues, so Victoria Park in East London, was basically created like 200 years ago, so five, six generations ago or something. And many of the trees, many of the great landscapes we have came from that kind of time. And many of these people knew that, that these landscapes would not come to fruition and look at their best and be their best until about now when the trees were all mature and, and everything else. So I think that that thing about forgetting about planning for the future, maybe to some extent is a relatively recent a recent occurrence. It's not that it wasn't within our culture here in London. It's not that people weren't thinking that way. Actually, they were. But something maybe within like the last... 50, 60, 70 years has happened. And maybe we just need to re-remember that, that important importance and think about how we can be good ancestors in the way that they were thinking about being good ancestors. Just coming back to the National Park City thing, Dan, I meant to ask you what the next stage is on that. Are, are there other cities in the UK and, and other parts of the world that are thinking about doing this? So the next stage for National Park Cities is... You know, there, there are people in different cities around the world who would love for their city to be a National Park City too. And the National Park City Foundation, the charity that we've set up to help make National Park Cities a success, is trying our best to help with that process, working alongside with, for example, World Open Parks, who actually had their head offices in Australia, and then also Salzburg Global Seminar, a partner in Salzburg in, in Europe as well. Um, and essentially, we've set down this idea, this challenge, there being 25 national park cities around the world by 2025. Um, some people might think that feels a bit ambitious, but other people have pointed out that given the state of our cities and our needs, that maybe it's not rapid enough. But as it stands, I think that Adelaide is very likely to be the next national park city. They're in a really, really good place. And you know, I think Adelaide would make a fantastic national park city for a wide range of reasons. How did all this start for you, Dan? Like, what was the origins of all this work are you doing now? Like, does this go back to your childhood or? I think playing really serious games of hide and seek. I think hide and seek is basically a game of, of geography. And I think in some ways geography, which is the subject I love, is fundamentally about hide and seek as well. Because hide and seek is about being playful. It's about being creative. Um, it's about being disruptive it's about finding places finding great places thinking about how you can make those places better by making dens and various different things about being free um but it also gives you the time to to, to connect with where you are as well so i have very strong memories of climbing trees and watching deer sort of walk beneath me or watching insects on the moss of where i was so it's this combination of being able to connect with nature and and places but also deconstruct them and construct them and be creative with them but I think that as I became older and became a teacher, realizing there was just so many young people who just were not getting that same opportunity because of this sort of weird, almost sort of backwards insurance policy that many parents have, where by wrapping their kids up in cotton wool now to protect them for now, unfortunately, they're saving up lots of problems potentially for the future in terms of anxiety and depression and all kinds of other issues. And 
So I think a lot of my journey, whether it's about the National Park City or whether it's about slowways, actually links very closely to my geographic awareness and knowledge of how children and adults are becoming disconnected from these kinds of opportunities. You're a big thinker, Dan. Like a lot of the ideas, you've got a big ideas. And I just wondered just to finish off with your vision for the future. You know, sometimes these things can seem really big and really complicated. And, you know, when you ask me that question and sort of it's instantly my brain is going into fight and flight sort of mode, trying to think of what this big thing is. And what it kind of comes down to is being more local, growing more stuff and walking more. And actually, if we fill our lives with those kinds of things more, what we'll see is that whether it's, you know, the climate crisis or the ecological crisis, whether it's our mental health, our relationships with others, that many of those things actually sort of can come right. But in order for that big vision to work, it does take lots of us to choose to do those things. And where we are at the moment in the UK, you know, it's interesting, we, we, we worked with WATM and architects, and they did this interesting animation of Fleet Street, one of the most busy streets in the city of London, in the centre of London. And they did this really cool animation that's been watched over a million times or something on Twitter and stuff now, where basically the street loses its cars and it all becomes ferociously green with people sitting out and everything else. And pre-COVID, people were getting in contact with us sort of going, that's ridiculous, that's never going to happen, what you're talking about. And now, like post, you know, going to the third sort of lockdown, it kind of all seems very reasonable and very doable and almost like, well, why wouldn't you do that, you know? And so actually, I weirdly feel, I feel cautiously hopeful that, that maybe this horrific experience that so many of us have been through around the world and are still going through, that maybe some people who have the right power in the right places will help to help make those kinds of visions happen more. And the more people see those things happen, the more they'll want it for themselves as well. Um, we'll see where that takes us. But I think sometimes the big stuff, you know, it really is underpinned by the small and easy stuff. Grow more, walk more, and spend more time locally. And that was Dan Raven Ellison speaking to me from his home in London. You can find out more about Dan and his guerrilla geography work on our website at environmentshow.com. We've written a profile of him and included the videos mentioned in our interview, The UK in 100 Seconds, and his new video, The UK's National Parks in 100 Seconds. You've been listening to The Environment Show. Stay tuned for more interviews with the world's environmental leaders. I'm Phil Stubbs. <laughs>